0: Well, welcome to Christian Life Academy. We're working our way through the Second London Baptist Confession. We are in Chapter 2, which is of God and the Holy Trinity. And uh, we just completed last week uh, Paragraph 1, which took us quite a long time. Uh, that, as most chapters, is the one, um, and as most chapters, is the paragraph that, the first paragraph, that is, is the paragraph that really defines um, what the subject is generally about. Certainly, it was true in this chapter, although you'll see these subsequent uh, paragraphs, which we're going to begin on paragraph two today, um, that these paragraphs uh, also tell us more about God, um, but it is less about the definition and more about uh, how he relates. Uh, to his creation. So that's what we're actually looking at today. It's the relations of God to his creation, Um, which by the way, if you think about that, there is no other relations for God. It is just to his creation because there is no other. It is just God and then what he has created. That's it. Um, So let's read paragraph two. It's a fairly long one. We actually read at the end of last week, just as a little bit of a uh, Uh, taste of what was coming, but uh, I'd like to read it again now if you wanted to follow along. It's on the screen. God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures, to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleases. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works. And in all his commands to him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship service or obedience as creatures they owe unto the creator and whatever he is further pleased to require of them now that is um, without even going through paragraph one which is all about the attributes of god and kind of defining who god is uh, that paragraph alone is enough for us to know who god is because it explains how he relates to his creation and uh, kind of, you'll see a number of things in there, we're going to break it down, but you see a number of things in there that basically um, it kind of explain who God is through the relations to his creation. So in other words, when this says that he can do by them, for them, or upon them, his creation, whatever he wants to do, essentially, um, the fact that he does not wipe us out when we sin reflects mercy, right? It reflects uh, his grace, that he doesn't bring that judgment upon us immediately. And so uh, we see those same concepts here present when we look at how he relates to his creation. But let's break this down a little further. All right. So we're going to start with the first section right there, um, which is really all focused on God's uh, self-sufficiency or independence from his his creation or the creature. And so you see the first paragraph down to um, footnote number 21 there. Um, that's really what we're dealing with here. And obviously the point, first of all, right off the bat, is that God has all life, glory, and goodness, goodness and blessedness in and of himself. Well, this is certainly separate and unrelated to his creation. It was true before creation, will continue for eternity. God did not become good because he created man. He did not come become good because man sinned. He was good always. He was, never, he was never not good, and then all of a sudden he defined a standard, and now he was good. Does that make sense? God is not changing. God is not changing. God was always good. Now you say, well, that seems like, why are you saying that? I mean, it's a little like a, so what? Move on. What's the next bullet point? <laughs> no. Well, the point is, is that that's not what everyone believes. Everyone does not believe that some believe that God indeed became who God was as a result of his creation. In fact, the supposition is, is that God is defined by his creation. Now, can you see how that would not truly be God? Now, this is a postmodernism view, trying to take the ideas that God is what he is because he is defined by his creation, it flips the paradigm upside down. It says, look, God is not God because He who he is. He is who he is because of we make him who he is. Where does that place man? Above God. It places man as the one who defines what God is. Now, this is very, very tricky stuff. Now, you think, well, that, nobody thinks that. I don't, I, don't, I don't know anybody that thinks that. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Do you know anybody who believes homosexuality is fine? And they say they're a believer. How about someone who thinks that having a woman pastor is fine? And they're a believer. How about someone that thinks sex outside of marriage is fine? Adultery, fornication, and they're a believer. Do you know anybody like that? I bet most of you do. Most of you do. And you know why they can hold that position? Because they believe what I just said. They believe that God is indeed defined by his creation. It is not God that defines himself because of who he is. It is you, man, that defines God. Now, this is the ultimate blasphemy. When we say, look, let me give you a good example. So, I've had this discussion before with a woman pastor. How can you justify being a pastor when the scripture is very clear about the requirements for a pastor being a man and the scripture requirements that says that women are to be silent in church. right? So if you say, well, that's not what it means when it says that. That's just contemporary culture, and the culture at that time would prohibit a woman from being pastor, so it would, be, it would just be normal for it to, to be that way. So what you're really saying is, is God said it, but he's not right. He didn't mean that. How about homosexuality? Have you ever had those discussions with someone who's a believer who says that we should be inclusive of homosexuals, that it's fine for them to be homosexuals, that they're sinners just like the rest of us, and we have to accept that? What they're really saying is when God says that he hates it, he doesn't hate it. When he says that it's a horrible thing, that he doesn't mean it's a horrible thing. What are they doing? They're telling us that God in his word says this, but that's not what he means. He means this. He means what I say he means. Can you see the problem? Now, this whole idea that man controls everything because of his own opinions, and his opinion, therefore, is the supreme, is not new, certainly, right? That's pride. We go back to Adam and Eve to see it. But its it has certainly become almost unquestionably correct in society today? Who are we to say that homosexuals shouldn't be married if they love each other? Well, good question. We're no one. We don't have the right to make that decision. But God does. And God has said it's sin. God has said it's not acceptable. So who are we? Nobody. We're followers of God. He's the one that makes the call. Now, this is unbelievable to me. Christians have compromised themselves so so much, we really have no voice in this anymore. When man commits these sins, we are accepting the concept that man can define what those things are. People that say, well, you know, I can't believe some people don't believe that transgenderism or or, uh, that homosexuality is wrong. That is so biased and prejudiced. According to who? You never hear the point that, are you saying it's okay because you say it's okay? Because the majority doesn't say that. But we don't live in a democracy anyway. Who defines if it's right or it's wrong? Well, if they love each other, it's right. Oh, really? Of course that's an invalid argument, but you never hear it made. Why would that be an invalid argument? If a 50-year-old man says he loves a 6-year-old girl, is that okay because they love each other? See, their argument falls apart then. They'll immediately say, oh, no, that's not okay. Wait a minute. Who makes the definition? You? You see the point? When we start to make moral decisions based on our opinion, that is a house of cards that ends in chaos. And when believers start to make decisions about what's right or what's wrong, contrary to God's word, they are essentially following this prideful idea of blasphemy. The idea that man defines what is true and what isn't true, not God. Man does not define God. God is who he is. He gave us the laws in his word because they reflect the character of who he is. He is not a perverse God. He created man and woman for a purpose. One man, one woman he created. He did not create all men. He did not create all women. And he made it very, very clear Men are not to be with men. Women are not to be with women. Didn't he? Don't we see this over and over? Don't we see the death penalty given to those who participated in that in the Old Testament over and over again? We do. We even see it reiterated in the New Testament. Christ reiterates it. So for someone to take that whole idea that we can just change it because the culture changes, what they're really saying is is that man can define God. And it's just not true. So this doctrine is extremely important because this is how we know what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's not true. If we don't have some higher authority to define this, then there is no definition. Everything is in flux. Nothing means anything. Anyone's opinion counts just as much as anyone else. Is there some reason that the current president, doesn't matter who it is, the current president, doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum he is, does it, does it, is it okay that the current president gets to define morality? That whoever won the election gets to, or got in office one way or the other, whoever is in office gets to define morality for the people? Of course not. Because we recognize, for one thing, that it's going to change. Right? It's going to change. Whoever's in office will not always be in office. You say, well, in some countries that's not true. (laughs) They're not always in office. Charlemagne is not still in power. He died, right? True over and over again. It is not okay for man to define morality. Are we trying to figure out how to deal with issues? Of course we are. Of course we are. How much should the government be involved in trying to figure out those issues? We're not going to turn this into a Constitution class, as tempting as it is for me. We're not going to do it. But we have to recognize that God is the one who defines morality. He is the one that defines what is good and what is bad because it's a reflection of who he is. He is the one who is defining these things. And he was good before man ever existed. It would not matter if he had created a completely different alien race and a completely different existence, not even in our universe. And by the way, maybe he has. We don't know that. We know the existence that we know. Do you know if God created anyone outside of our universe, and outside of our existence? First of all, let me suggest to you that of course he did. And of course you know this. And they are the angels. Right? He did create something outside of our universe. They don't exist at the same plane that we do. Right? True. Is it possible that God could do something else? You have to say yes, he's God. Now, Should we worry about that? (laughs) No. (laughs) Why? He doesn't tell us in his word. He doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us. If we we needed to know, God would tell us. Right? One thing we do know is, is that his character cannot change even in some other creation. He is still God. He is still who he is. And who he is has nothing to do with this creation. Nothing to do with it. God is not in need of any of his creation. He doesn't receive any life, glory, goodness, or blessedness from it. So the point here is is that God doesn't need it. We just said that creation doesn't define him. Neither does he need it. In other words, God is not satisfied only if he receives adoration, only if he receives blessing. He is complete and satisfied in of himself without it. Does that make sense? Let's continue on that. We give God glory, which he is eternally due, But he has no need of it. He does not need his creation. He has all his glory in and of himself. Does that make sense? In other words, should we glorify God? Yes, we should. Now, we know we should glorify God because the Bible tells us we should glorify God, right? So that's a command, and we're told that we should do it. But we should do it naturally because he is also our creator. He is also our creator. By the way... Do you recognize that this concept, which is true of all biblical truths, of honoring God is reflected in how he commands children to honor their parents? In essence, they created the child. Now, through the miraculous working of God in our biology, certainly that happens. However, they are the ones who brought that child into existence. They are commanded to honor their parents. Those children are commanded to honor their parents. Guess what that reflects? How we are to honor God, our creator. We're to honor him. The honor is due to him. The honor is due. (laughs) Say, well, I don't like my mom. I don't like my dad. By the way, I like my mom and dad. But I'm saying, if someone that says, well, I don't like my mom and I don't like my dad, You're not really given a choice. You must still honor them. Can parents do things that are dishonorable? They all do. They all do. They don't want to. But they do. You still are commanded to honor them. You don't honor what they do that's sin. You honor them because they are your parent. We don't honor God because we agree with what he's doing. We don't honor him because we like the way things are going. We honor him because he is God. And honor is due. God is all goodness in of himself. We are utterly incapable of giving God goodness, and he does not need man to be good. He is good without all of creation. So, we can't make God better. We can't increase his goodness We don't increase his goodness. He is all goodness without us. Same concept, right? God receives blessedness from himself. We are commanded to bless God, but that does not mean we are adding to the blessedness of God. It is simply due to him, deeply due to him, so we must bless him. In other words, we bless God because he deserves to be blessed, but he is not more blessed because we bless him. Does that make any sense? Now, this is very different from us, right? In other words, if people bless you, they honor you, they talk good about you, they compliment you, all those things, right? That can actually make you feel better about yourself. Would you agree? You're going to feel better about yourself generally, you know, unless you know it's really not true, then you feel a little guilty. But anyway, for the most part, you do feel like that's an that, honor, right? That's a blessing. For that to happen. Well, when we bless God, he does not feel more blessed. He is complete in and of himself. We should bless him, but he does not feel more blessed when we bless him. Does that make sense? In other words, if no man ever blessed God, he's still complete. He's not lacking anything. Because if you think about this, and this is kind of where we're going with this whole concept. If God receives more blessing by man blessing him, then he is less complete than he should be as God. He is then an incomplete God. If he requires blessing from man to be blessed, if he requires man to worship him to feel worshipped, that's going to make God feel good. No. No. He's complete. He's God. If it's not true, he's not God. Contrary to man-centered theology, God is not standing in need of any creature which he hath made. Man-centered theology believes that God needs man's service, love, and worship. Instead of understanding that God does not need it, he deserves it. And this is where you see a difference. Different religions look at this in a different way. They will come up with this man-centered theology that God is not complete without man. Man. In fact, some of them actually describe this as like a symbiosis, that when man worships God and honors God, then man God blesses man. And that man in trouble, man not being blessed, who makes the standard, man, man not being blessed is a result of God not receiving enough blessing. So if you want to be blessed, what should you do? Bless God. So when God's happy, then you get happy. That's the idea. That's the idea. And if you don't bless God, then he's not happy. Bad things are going to happen to you. You see how this works? It's tied up with all man-centered theology. Certainly that's the reflection of karma. You heard that before. That certainly reflects that. But We see this in many ways. This idea that man must do these things to make God happy. And if man makes God happy, then a happy God is good for man because he will then bless man. And this is the idea that if man is not, if God is doing something that we think is bad, then he must not be happy. We must worship him more. So, have you ever heard of that happening before anywhere? Well, there's really easy ones that are almost anecdotal that you know of, like all of the uh, natives on an island with a volcano. And when the volcano is rumbling and the volcano erupts, oh, God is not happy We must worship him. We must offer things to him as sacrifice so that God will be happy and stop the volcano. Right? They say, well, yeah, but that's, you know, primitive cultures, blah, blah, blah. Really? It's exactly where many people are today in religion. Things aren't going good? I should probably get back to church. That's where they're at. They don't really think about it, but they're the natives. Bad things are happening, and so I need to go to church because that'll make God happy, and then He'll let off a little bit. So much bad stuff won't happen to me. Oh. God does chastise, right? And He's trying to draw people to Him. But it's not by them checking off the box by going to church. It's a heart change that God wants, not an attendance change. Does that make sense? Even though God made us for his own glory, he is not deriving or obtaining glory from his creation, but only showing his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. If he was in need of that glory, he would not be self-sufficient. It makes sense again, right? God creates us for his glory, but it's to show his glory. It's not because he needs to have his glory shown in order to be complete. Again, that would be less than God. If he is missing something that his creation must give him, then that is not God. Not complete. God is the source of all existence and no part of that creation and no part of that creation and it all exists for him. So creation exists for God. This is hard for us to remember. Isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, pretty often we don't realize that we are actually here for God's glory. What we think about is what we've got to do when we get home. What we've got to do on Saturday. What's on our to-do list. How we're going to get that car replaced that has a problem. Whatever it is. Whatever the human condition can put upon our minds to distract us. And that's the sin nature less dependent on god and more reliant on ourselves more reliant on ourselves now if you think that you know this is new to our generation and now you know this is yes that's true that's where a lot of people are but it didn't used to be that way you know the good old time religion that's the way not the way that it was everybody completely knew that they were what they were here for and everything else it's absolutely not true the apostles themselves struggled with this same concept Same concept. Were they worried about things that they shouldn't have worried about, and they didn't see the fact that God was going to take care of them if they did what he told them to do? The apostles are afraid they're going to go out. Christ is sending them by twos, right, to different areas. Sends them in all directions. And when he does this, he tells them, don't take a coat, don't take a staff, don't take any food, take nothing they're like, well, how are we going to make it? And what's he say? If God takes care of the birds of the air, he's take care of you. The birds don't store up anything for winter. They don't put anything away. And yet, God feeds them through the winter. Right? You know, this is all Brian Irvin paraphrase. (laughs) I'm not quoting the King James there. But that is what Christ uses as an example for them. Right? So here you have God Himself commanding them to go out and do this mission, and this is what He tells them: Don't take all that stuff with you. Just go. And they question, "Well, wait, 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 wait. We gotta, you know, we gotta make a list. We gotta find some suitcases. We're gonna have to figure out how we're gonna get this stuff there. Maybe we have gotta hire a servant to lug the stuff with us. I mean, we're gonna need a lot of stuff to go." And He says, "That's not. That's not it. You're gonna trust God. This is gonna teach you to have more faith that God will take care of you." Now, there is a fine line, a very fine line, between trusting God and trying to command God, tempting God. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is people who say, I'm not going to do what I've been told to do by God, and I'll just trust that God will take care of me. What do you mean? Okay. First of all, men are commanded to work. That's the natural place that God has created man. Before there was ever sin, Adam had a job. Don't believe that for eternity you will have nothing to do. All you're going to do is attend banquets and parties. Don't know that. But we do know that would be nice. (laughs) I'm not saying that would would be great, but I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is is that God created man and gave him a job. Man was supposed to be doing something. Then when when man fell, God cursed the ground and said, now work is going to be hard. Obviously, the idea would be is that prior to that, work was not hard. But then after this, now work is going to be hard. Are you with me on this so far? Now, man is to take care of his children, and I mean men and women. Parents are to take care of their children. So should a parent just not buy any food and trust that God will door dash some food to their door and take care of their kids? Well, no, no. As a parent, they are to care for that child, which would include providing for them. How are they gonna do it? Well, they're just gonna steal it. No, of course not, because that's a sin. They're going to have to work to actually make some money or grow their own food so that they can have food for their children. Do you understand what I'm saying now? What I'm saying is is that God has told us certain behaviors that we must follow and certain things we must do, and those things are things that we should do. Now, has God told us that we must have mansions? No. Has God told us that we must have 35-foot cabin cruisers? No. Has God told us that we must have private airplanes? No. But man. It would be nice to have those things. Well, God can bless you with those things. But that's not your goal. Your goal is to glorify God. What's needed to do that? I don't know. Work that out with God. But the focus should be on him, not on acquiring stuff. Lots of scriptures to talk about that, right? The wood, hay, and stubble of life that's burned away when our acts and our works are tried. Does that mean it's bad to have a house? No. Does that mean it's bad to have a cottage? No. Does that mean it's bad to let people go to your cottage? No. (laughs) I'm looking at you, June. No. doesn't mean that at all. What it means is, is that our focus should be on what God wants us to do, not what we want to do. Do you have to take care of those things? Look, if you have a place to live, which, by the way, you all have a place to live. If you say, well, I live in a box under a bridge, okay, you have a place to live. Whatever it is, wherever you live, God has that for you, and we are also, according to Scriptures, to be good stewards of what God has blessed us with. Good stewards. That's it. So that means you have to take care of what God gives you. You You're commanded to do that. You're commanded to do this. So, should you get in a house and just let it go into squalor. Well, if God wants the roof fixed, he'll fix the roof. If God wants the plumbing fixed, he'll fix the plumbing. No, that's tempting God. What that's saying is is that I'm not going to do what I should do to follow how you've told me to care for my family. Instead, I'm just going to abandon that and act lazy and not be a good steward and just trust that you'll fix it all. Have you ever known anybody like that? I have. I know people like that. I've known people that they have no problem tempting God. And you probably do too if you think about it. People that don't prepare for something to happen bad. And then when it does, there's no plan. They're just in trouble. Then usually they go to the charity of others to be able to meet their needs. Now you say, well, what if that's what God's plan was? He was going to bless them with the charity of others. Could very well be. The difference would be whether or not they actually purposefully did that or whether or not they were trying, but they were unable to succeed. Have you ever known anybody who works hard and doesn't make much money? Yeah, sure, right? Maybe that was you. You work hard, not I'm hardly making anything. So that makes it difficult, right? And then your car breaks down, and how are you going to pay for it? Well, you've been trying. You've been working hard. Would it be surprising then if God was to bless you in some way and have that be able to be taken care of? Maybe with somebody helping you with that or maybe getting a discount or maybe somebody offers you a car or something like this? I mean, I've seen that before too. Have you? No. Yeah. That's God. That's God. And that's Christians behaving the way they should. What is not is to say, I know that my car needs tires but we've got to go on vacation. No, you don't. No, you don't. Yes, I know that I really need to go to the doctor to have this foot examined, but I really want to go watch the Red Wings. So if God wants me to go to the doctor, he'll give me money for that. (laughs) He did give you the money. You just bought Red Wings tickets with it. That's tempting God. That's what we're talking about there. Okay. God is the source of all existence, no part of that creation. It all exists for him, that's what we just said. All right, so let's look at some verses here from the footnotes of this part of paragraph 2. First of all, John 5, 26, "...for as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself." In other words, God has life in himself. There's nothing else that gave God life. He has it in himself. Psalm 148.13, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the heaven and the earth. He does not receive that glory from the heaven and earth. It is beyond the glory of the heaven and earth. Psalm 119.68, Thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. This the psalmist is defining as saying, God, thou art good, and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. In other words, God is good. There is no he becomes good. He is good. Job 22, 2-3. Can a man be profitable unto God as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? So who's speaking here? Does anybody recognize that portion? Or Job 22? And that gives you the hint. We're getting near the end of Job. Who is speaking to Job? Was well, that who is it? Yes. And guess what? He's pointing out an extremely true statement. You, even though he's using it in a bad context, you cannot make God better. You can't make God more. You are not a gain to him through your actions. You understand? Now, at this point, Job wasn't actually suggesting that. However, we see in a little bit, he starts to lose some faith, and God straightens him out on this as well. But we're not going to go down that path. Romans eleven thirty four 34 to 36, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So, who has been God's counselor? No one is God's counselor. No one tells God what he should do. No one. Very clear, Romans 11. No one tells God. Who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. Who gave something to God? So now, God's got to give to him. No one. No one. Romans 8.36, it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. This is a quote from the Old Testament, but notice what the key phrase is. For thy sake we are killed all the day long. For whose sake? God's. God's sake. Not for our sake. You say, well, it wouldn't be for our sake if we're killed. It's not even for other men. It's for God acts seventeen twenty four to twenty five God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that He is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men 's hands as though He needed anything, seeing He giveth to all life and breadth and all things. Notice what this passage is pointing out it 's talking about idolatry, right you see this god made the world but it says here clearly he dwelleth not in temples made with hands neither is he worshipped with men's hands why because that would implicate that he needs it this says he does not need anything seeing he give it to all life and breadth and all things god does not need to be worshipped as an idol he does not have to have some food offering laid before an idol some coins set before an idol he doesn't need that to happen Because he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything. Revelation 4.11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Where is this happening? Who is saying this? Thou art, Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. This is a description of the throne in heaven. The throne in heaven. Who is saying that? Anybody know? Oh. Good answer. (laughs) Yes. And they're joined by the multitude. They're joined by the multitude. Everyone says this. They say, well, that maybe that's just their opinion. Do you think they're sitting in front of the throne in heaven, in front row seats, by the way, because they're trying to boost God's ego? They're saying it because it's true. And God allows it to be there because it's true. He would not allow a lie to be propagated in his presence. For thy pleasure they are and were created. It was for God's pleasure. It wasn't because he owed it to man. It wasn't because he wanted to make man feel good. It wasn't because he knew you were coming and he wanted to set this whole thing up for you. Sorry, just not the way it is. kind of sets our place in a proper perspective. Let's continue in the paragraph. All right. So the paragraph continues with, and he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleases. Now this reflects his sovereign dominion over his creation, over them. In other words, God has the right to do whatever he wants to do for or on his creation. Now that you would think would be almost self-evident it should be self-evident as sovereign king and lord of all or it should be over all creation he has in his authority complete jurisdiction and dominion now this again seems like this is a no-brainer of course this is true but we bucket this all the time we really don't like this and we want to throw that saddle off of us because we don't like this idea and the truth of the matter is, is that we have to accept it whether we like it or not. It doesn't matter if we don't like the idea that God can do whatever he wants to to us. He can. He has a right to do whatever he wants. He can extend mercy if he wants to extend mercy. He can extend grace if he wants to extend grace. He can extend wrath because he wants to, if he wants to extend wrath. He can bring persecution if he wants to bring persecution. He can do whatever he wants to do because He's God. Now, this is where most Christians have a problem. And if you're honest, you've had a problem with this too. How do I mean? You're not really happy with what God's doing. And so you think you maybe need to take matters into your own hands. Do you? The question would be, has God commanded you to take that into your own hands? That'd be the question. This is easy to get sucked into. Very easy. Let me give you an example. God has not commanded his church to run the government. Nope. In nowhere can you find that. Now you say, well, what about the theocracy of Israel? It's not the church. We are now the church. The church is an entirely new creation, institution, created by God, the bride of Christ. The church is commanded to do things. It is not the same as the nation of Israel. The church is not commanded to form one government. Notice that Israel was a people, but also a nation. The church is not ever never has been nor will it ever be a nation it's beyond that it's beyond a nation christ described it as a kingdom not of this world but partially existing in this world brands will be preaching on the kingdom It'll be interesting to see how he covers that part but that's the concept right christians in the church are a kingdom that exists beyond this world. Why do we have a Christian flag in front of our church, not the American flag? We are an embassy for Christ's kingdom. We are not an embassy for the United States government. It would be shocking for believers in other nations to see a flag of the country flown in front of a church like so many churches do in the United States. Who are you representing? Christ not the United States. Christ. That's whose kingdom the church is to be a part of. We are not commanded in any way to get involved with government. If you say, well, maybe I can take this one verse, probably out of context, and I can take this one verse and I can find something in there and infer that that means that we should actually be taking control of the government. Okay. Well, There's a very easy rule of thumb that believers for 2,000 years have used to understand verses in Scripture, and that is to look at the early church. Initially, they looked at the apostles. What did the apostles think on the issue? Then it was the direct disciples of the apostles. What did did the direct uh, disciples say? Because look, by the way, if you don't know this, and you can actually read this in the earliest church fathers' writings, that there were additional things that the apostles taught that aren't in the Bible. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Because they were explaining things. Their words were not considered scripture. The early church didn't consider their words scripture. What they considered was they were explaining something that maybe they needed to have explained because they weren't sure how that would work out. And you know what we see in the early church about government? We're not to be worried about it. You think our government's bad? Try Rome. Try Rome. The moral code was completely different than ours. We can't even understand that. But the moral code was different. The value of human life was different. It wasn't the same as ours. Like, we value human life. Even though we do things and we allow things in this nation which show that we don't value all human life, right? Like abortion. However, if someone's sick, you don't toss them out on the street and say, well... Nice knowing you. Let's continue the party now. They're dead. But that's what Romans did. That's what they did. The Roman government jailed and murdered Christians. Routinely. And this was not looked down upon by the Romans. Because they didn't place value on human life. Now, have we seen this in any other times through history? Of course we have, right? Anytime that man thinks that he is greater than some other group of men, then you see genocide. You see people killed because they're different. Always wrong. Always wrong. But the point is, we are to do what we're to do because God says we're to do what we're to do. We are not to worry about the things that we can't control. We're to let God worry about the things it cannot control. Look, have you ever seen an election? I was going to say like the last one, but no, let's not go there. Because no one's seen an election like the last one. Not quite. But if you have, have you ever seen an election where the Christians were out in significant force behind one character, and then that particular candidate for office did not get elected. You ever seen that? Sure you have. Now, most of the time, by the way, Christians are never united behind one one candidate. They're always split. Some Christians will say, this candidate, why? you can't vote for the other candidate. And then the other ones will say, how could you vote for that candidate, right? They're going to find some reason to justify their picking one candidate over another. But when the Christians all let's say significantly, support one candidate, and that candidate doesn't lose, or doesn't win, they lose, does that mean that God lost control of that election? Now, naturally, you would think, well, of course it doesn't mean that. But do we believe that? Look, is our nation going in the wrong direction, in our opinion? Is there anybody that would say, no, I think it's actually going the right direction? you Just raise your hand. I will not call on you publicly, probably not. Doug, put your hand up. I'm just kidding. No. We, you know, Probably uh, everybody here would have a slightly different opinion about what way we're going wrong, but you would see some ways, at least, that you think that the country is going in a bad direction, or we've been going in a bad direction, or something like that. You would think that. You would admit that. However, we also must recognize that God is still in control. God is still in control of what's happening. He is still in control of the nation. He allows what happens, or sometimes causes what happens. Do we remember the lessons of the Old Testament? He did have a people that were separated and called by his name. And they got into captivity as slaves multiple times. They were defeated in battle many times. Tens of thousands were killed at a time. Multiple times this happened. By the way, and when you're talking about a nation that's smaller than a million or just over a million people, losing 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people is a big deal. This is a big deal. This happened to Israel. God's chosen people, his nation, this happened. Why? Well, God was on vacation. No. God allowed it to happen. And if you truly believe that God's will is everything that happens, he caused it to happen. He brought the wrath upon them. And we see this many times in Scripture where God says, this is what's going to happen because you're disobeying me. You've turned to idols. You're blaspheming me. Boom. This is going to happen. It's bad. Do we somehow think That a nation that is not God's chosen people, inhabited by many Christians, by the way, as every other nation on the earth. That somehow God will not let this nation go down the wrong path. That it's not his will for this nation to have problems. It's not his will for this nation to have wrath. How can we think this? It doesn't matter how many Christians are up in arms about what happens in politics. God's still in charge. It would not take any Christians being up in arms for God to change politics the way he wants to change them. Now we say, we recognize what's right, we recognize what's wrong, we can talk about it, nothing wrong with that. We talk about all these things. What we can't do is, is make that the focus of our lives. Because that's not why God says we're here. He has not commanded us to run in the political process and make that our life's goal. It's not it. Can we serve an office? Yeah, nothing wrong with a Christian serving in office. But you do it to serve God. Not because you know the best way. Let me guarantee you, no matter who gets in office, you don't know the best way. And most people, when they get in office and since the only one I know of in this, this, this room that's actually served in office is Doug Hodge, who served on the Road Commission. But most people, when they get in office, they actually are not quite sure what to do on some, some issues. Not really sure. I mean, they might have a big picture view. But then you get involved, and you start seeing both, all the sides of some issue that comes up, and man, it's difficult. It's hard. i seen lots of people get in office that they had the right perspective. In four years, they had the wrong perspective, in my opinion. Why? Well, they compromised. They compromised. Why? Well, because they believed that that's the only way they could actually get anything done, was by compromise. And by the way, politics is compromise. I don't know if you realize that. Would you agree with that, Doug? Politics is compromise. I mean, it, it's true that nothing will ever get done if ever. Let, think about that for a second, OK? Let's just, how many people on the Road Commission? Three. Okay. So three, which it's good, right? Because you got a tiebreaker. So three people on a road commission. What if all three have a differing opinion on an issue? Let's say a big issue. What are we going to focus the primary money in the road commission budget on? And one person thinks on roads. One person thinks on uh, trucks. <laughs> More higher wages for the guys. And the other person thinks cutting trees along the side of the road. Don't get me started on that one. All right. If somebody isn't willing to give up some of their opinion, no no agreement will ever be made. Can you see what I'm saying? There has to be some level of compromise. It astounds me that believers will hold this, this thinking that there can be zero compromise on any issue and expect that things will change do you know why liberal side and liberals that they're moving forward towards socialism and communism why they're so successful because what they continually do is seek compromise that will move closer and closer and closer and closer to their goal. They look like the reasonable ones because they're saying, look, you know what, okay, we'll accept that you want to do it that way, so as long as you accept that we'll do part of our way, and they continue to move it this way and this way. Meanwhile, the conservatives look like fools because they won't make any willingness to do this. Now, I saw this over and over again with the abortion issue. Christians who absolutely would accept no partial ban on abortions that's not an acceptable legislation we can't do that why well because that still allows some abortion true true so do we want to stop any is it better to stop any or should we just continue down that path and stop none now if you think well that's not a problem i don't see you know that was probably a good way for us to go really you realize what we just passed in november right Instead of moving down that direction and trying to get us to a place that sounded more and more and more reasonable so that we could actually get abortion more and more and more outlawed, we held this line, nothing got passed, and then sure enough, we passed legislation, voted for by the people, practically unrepealable, that abortion is now legal forever in this state. Not such a good way for us to go, was it? Well, hindsight's always 2020. But let's look back and see what we were doing. If you think that you can't vote for somebody because they're not the perfect candidate, then don't vote. Because there are none. There are none. There are no perfect candidates. You all know that. Look, if you voted for Joe Biden at the last election, get out. No, I'm just kidding. If you voted for Joe Biden at the last election, you did not vote for him thinking that he was the perfect candidate. You could see some problems. You could see some flaws. You probably had some disagreements with some of his policies. And if you voted for Donald Trump, you could get out. No. You probably thought that Donald Trump was not perfect, that he had some problems, that there were some issues. But you still voted for him. Why? He's not perfect either. Neither of them were perfect. And there were other candidates on the ballot, by the way. U.S. Taxpayers Party, Green Party. A number of parties, Socialist Party, it was on, if you remember the election, that was, they were all on the ballot. None of them were perfect either. They all had problems. In the end, we must be content that God is in charge, that he is in control, that God is the one who is sovereign, has complete jurisdiction and dominion over his whole creation. He is going to run it the way he wants to run it. He's going to allow to happen what he wants to have happen. It's not going to be what we think. It's going to be what he thinks. And what we must do is what he commands us to do. What we must not do is be so discontent with what's happening that that becomes the definition of our life. We're just discontent. Let me remind you of something. And I hope that of anything that we talked about today, that you'll take this with you and you'll focus on this one thing. Discontentment is sin. Discontentment is sin. That's you saying to God, I'm not where I should be. That's you saying to God, I'm not getting what I should get. That's you saying to God, things should be different than you're making them. We don't think that way. But that's the truth. Does that mean we should never change? Doesn't mean that. Does that mean that we shouldn't want things better? It means that. But we seek those things without being discontent. There's a difference, by the way. Let me just give you this because maybe this will help. There's a difference between discontentment and being unhappy. Okay? Now let me give you the very, very simple example of this. Kathy and Paul, avid gardeners, Agree? Kathy's wondering where I'm going. I see the look on her face. They could say, I'm not happy with the way the tomatoes are growing this year. Right? That's not sin. That's not sin. They're just discussing the fact that they don't, they don't like the way that happened. And that usually would bring about some, even maybe very brief discussion of, is there anything they could do different? And maybe there is, maybe there isn't, right? But that's different from being discontent, right? Discontent is, if you think about it, it's, you have to really examine, if, to know the difference between if you're just unhappy about something or if you're discontent, step back and try to evaluate, when I feel this way, is it because I don't like the way God is allowing this to happen? Or is it because I want to actually see if there's something I can do to help this situation? You see the difference? Now, that obviously infers, and I do mean to infer this, that if it's something that's beyond your control, that's discontent. Right? You can say, well, wait a minute. What if I'm not happy with the new debt reduction ceiling or debt ceiling increase that Congress just passed and the president signed? Right? Just, just, I think yesterday. Just signed that. What if I'm not happy about that? Okay, that's okay. You can you can say, I'm not happy about that. But that's probably as far as it should go in your mind. Because if you're dwelling on this, because you're discontent about this, now your focus is shifted to that legislation instead of God. What you must accept is, you must say, I'm not happy about that. And that's pretty far, as much far as you should go. Because at that point, you're going to turn it into discontent. Now, this is hard for us. I mean, look, if you're really honest with yourself, this is very hard for us not to be discontent. Because we do want things to be the way that they, we think they should be, right? I mean, we all do. We all would like things to be a certain way, whatever it is, and whatever subject, or whatever, whatever we're thinking is, we'd like it to be that way. And a lot of times, things aren't that way. They're just not that way. But there's a difference between wanting it to be better And trying to make it better with accepting the way that God has made it. So when you feel that way, what's the first thing you should do? You should pray. You should pray about it. You should ask God to help you to not be discontent. And then ask him to tell you what you should do. Let's close in word prayer.